invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 36, some of the verses that sort of are bookends to this uh, passage are very familiar with you, I'm sure. We want to unpack that this morning. Um, very important. This is truth that sets you free. I don't think that there could be many more things that are more important than this. This speaks to our gospel. It speaks to the truth of Christ and his word. It speaks to the fundamental means of salvation for those who may not know him. And we're learning much about Christ and the gospel through the discourses that he's had up to this point in chapter 8, a long chapter, another long discourse, and the words that he's speaking, again, are, are being uh, uh, misunderstood, they're confused, they're offended by them, they're, they're having a whole host of reactions that we've seen as he continues to reveal himself through uh, the teaching that he's giving there at the temple. So he's still at the temple, he's still teaching, and we uh, want to take a moment now, we'll go ahead and read it, we'll pray, and we'll see what the Lord has for us this morning. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Father, it seems every time we come to the words of your son, Jesus, we're struck by the profundity of these words. We also understand, Lord, the clarity that you've given us. Perhaps we've been very familiar with these passages and the power that's in them. And these that heard you in that first day that they were spoken by God incarnate, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, it's causing great confusion. It's causing great angst as you're allowing providentially, according to your plan, this opposition to continue to be ramped up. It's heightening. And it will culminate in that day when the Lord will no longer say, for it is not yet my day or hour. The hour will come. And the Son of Man must be sacrificed. We already know these things, Lord, because we've read the Scriptures many times. And to now place ourselves back on that day, when these words were first being spoken, it must have been very powerful. We can see that in the understanding of the narrative. And so, Lord, we know what they're going to do. We know what had to be done in order to secure salvation for us. So now, for now, Lord, it's important for us to listen so that at least in this passage, this portion of the discourse, that we would be made to understand and be very clear on what our gospel is. Help us to do that now. For your glory's sake, we pray, and for the sake of the souls that you would be pleased to save. For it's in your name we pray. 
Amen. So he's been dialoguing at the temple and he continues to do that. As you can see by the text as we've read it together, this provides a test. <clears throat> There's a test embedded in this uh, passage that helps us to further understand who the few really are. Because there were many, if you remember chapter 6, there were many that were even disciples that turned and walked away, chapter 6, verse 66. So even those that are proclaimed in Scripture as disciples can walk away, and the word many is used. And we see it in verse 30, if you back up one verse above our text, we finished off last time with, as he was saying these things, many believed. Now he goes right into verse 31, challenging that belief. He continues to challenge them. He continues to, it's almost as though he's saying, if you're going to bear my son's name, if you're going to bear the name Christian, you will be challenged. And this is the litmus test. It's not like he's just celebrating there. Oh, all of these folks believe. No, there were many that believed, that walked away from him. Why? Well, we've seen that over and over again. And in this portion of the text, it's no different. So it, this is a, a test that he gives all of those who claim to believe him. It's a simple way of finding out if they not just believe him, but actually belong to him. And, and I've got four sort of statements that define what a true disciple is. They're not up there for you, but we will have them as they come up. I just didn't take the time to uh, put them in the introduction, but it's going to be to find out who the true disciple is. It's actually somebody who's gone from believing to belonging. That'll be the first one. The next one will be from finding to following, from finding Jesus, or Jesus finding us, I guess would be more accurate, to following and what that entails. And then third, from hearing to heeding. So it's not just that they heard and believed. There's an expectation there. And finally, from legalizing to loving. And we'll see those as we go along here this morning. But first, I want to just make sure that we understand that Scripture makes it appropriate that we examine ourselves, that we test ourselves, because this is the most important question confronting any and all human beings. If I get this wrong, if you get this wrong, if the people you talk to get this wrong, uh, we're, we're in trouble. I mean, it could set the eternal destiny of our soul really hinges on how we answer this test in, these, in the scriptures, in this passage. So tests are good. Psalm 6, 26, verse 2, the psalmist writes, Prove me, O Lord. Try me. Test my heart and my mind. And psalmist will say that from time to time. David does, of course, in uh, Psalm 139 as he concludes with, see if there's any wicked way in me. So this is something we should invite because of the importance of the question being asked here. Of course, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul writes, examine yourselves. He's straightforward about it. We should examine ourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you. See, there's the belonging. Have I gone from believing to actually discovering that Christ is in me? That's, that's part of the test. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What test is that? Realizing, as 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, that Jesus Christ is in you. 
That's belonging. So there's those who are defined as disciples that many of them turned away. There's more people that will eventually turn away and actually a group that will have him put to death. So we can't just say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. We should we might say that because we're not going to get into some long discourse ourselves about what that actually means. But we're we're hard pressed to uh, know what that actually entails, what all that, what we're saying by even making that general statement. What does that actually mean? It's we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It's, it's not of ourselves. It's, 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 it's of, not of works. It's a gift from God. And so we're grateful for that because we would all fail if we tried to earn our own salvation. And we understand that. J.C. Rowell made this point. I'm going to have him make this point uh, even better. To make a beginning in religious life is comparatively easy. Not a few mixed motives assist us. The love of novelty, the praise of well-meaning but hasty professors, the secret of self-satisfaction, of feeling how good I am, as a Christian, the universal excitement attending a new positive outlook, all these things combine to aid the young believer, young beginner rather, aiding by them, he aided by them rather, he begins to run the race that leads to heaven, lays aside many bad habits, takes up many good ones, has many comfortable frames and feelings, and gets on swimmingly for a time. But when the newness of his position is past and gone, when the freshness of his feelings is rubbed off and lost, when the world and the devil begin to pull hard at him, when the weakness of his own heart begins to appear, then it is that it is then that we he finds out the real difficulties of vital Christianity. When it is that he discovers, then it is that he discovers the deep wisdom of our Lord's saying now before us, it is not beginning but continuing, a religious profession that is the test of true grace, end quote. So it's the continuous nature of our faith walk. It's the way we are walking out that statement we've made that we're Christians that we want to concern ourselves with. And as I said, the first point I wanted to make, and I've already made it, is from believing to belonging. Listen to 1 John 2.24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. You see that? This is, it's at home in you. The things that you've heard, the word of God as it's spoken by Christ, let that abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So you see the implications there. If what he has said to me does not live in me, Christ the Word coming alive in me, if it hasn't found a, a home in my heart, if that isn't the ruling affection of my life, something else on this earth is. I don't want to get this wrong, and I know that you don't either. True disciples are those whose belief is more than just intellectual or an emotional experience. It's more than that. They actually have Christ in them. It says that repeatedly in Scripture. And the reason they do is because they belong to Him. So we go from just plain believing in the set of facts, which even the demons do, maybe in some of our cases better than us, but they're not saved. They're not 
there aren't souls to salvage there. So it has to be much more than believing. But it's nothing that we've done. It's all that he's done. He, he didn't invite us to come up and ask him if we would please have him put our name in the book of life. He did that. I belong to him. You belong to him. And so if that's the case, then we have Christ in us quite literally. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And the things that we've heard should be abiding in our heart. That directs everything. That changes everything. It changes the course of my life. He has the strongest affection. It's the most powerful affection. So the things that he says shapes my, or reshapes in my case, my worldview. It shapes our it changes our perceptions, changes our judgments, it changes our motives, it changes what we strive after, it changes how we talk, it changes what we do, it changes everything. Why? Because he's resident in me. You see? That's the point. So I belong to him. You belong to him. So verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. All right, this is the group we saw in verse 30. That as he was saying these things, many believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are truly disciples, my disciples. I don't know if they were all that fond of hearing that. I, you know, I... I think that they would have been quite happy to just say, yeah, we believe in who you are. You've made that pretty clear. I'm on board. We're following you around, aren't we? But he makes these separations as he goes along through these discourses that we've been journeying through. So he says to the Jews who believed him. So many people claim to be believers, followers, even disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, including those being addressed right here. But Jesus knew them better than we do or better than other people do. You remember chapter 2, verse 23 to 25? There were, and the word many is used again there, if you recall when we were there. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. He did not have his word abiding in them. He could see that. You and I don't have that sight. We think that we do when we claim to know what somebody's motives are for what they're doing, but we really don't know for sure. He does. He does. So he didn't entrust himself, even though he had people saying, we believe. We believe in the, the name. That's everything. So that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Then there was those, men, I mentioned this earlier, John 6, 66, many of his disciples, here's the word many again, turned back and no longer walked with him. And the way that's structured in the Greek, it indicates that this was permanent. They turned away permanently from him. So they didn't belong to him. They didn't belong to him. So there's many people that sincerely believe in who Jesus is, but they embrace an inaccurate or incomplete understanding of what he came to do and what he expects from all of us who take his name. Second, so we go from believing to belonging. Understand that this is an issue of possession. I belong to him. He is sovereign over my salvation experience. I'm, I have human responsibility there, but I belong to him. And when somebody asks me, when were you saved? <laughs> how, how do you answer that question? So I just said, I don't know when was my name written in the book of life because that sealed it. 
your name's in there, you will be saved. But we have a responsibility, don't we? We have a responsibility to respond to the gospel. It's not an invitation. It's a command. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, and Jesus said again at the beginning of his earthly ministry in chapter 4. So there's human responsibility there, clearly. Well, we can't know when that moment was. We can know roughly when things changed in terms of our perspective on life. We can get the season or the rough time frame of when that was, but we can't write down the precise day, not with any degree of certainty. So from finding to following, this is our finding Jesus or Jesus more accurately finding us, that it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with making that statement of your belief or whatever. There is an expectation there. People that have an incomplete or inaccurate understanding of what the gospel demands and calls for in terms of your life belongs to him. We don't have a choice in it. But we do that with pleasure. Why? Because we love him. That's why we'll get to that in the, in the last point, from legalizing to loving. He found us. He came after us, that hound of heaven. He was going to be relentless in that pursuit until he found us, sought us, bought us with his own blood, and we belong to him. Now I, you and I follow him. But we need to understand what that means. He, it, he says, if you abide in my word, this is the test of a true disciple. If you abide in my word, so you're saying you believe, he's saying to the crowd here, you're saying you believe, okay, well, what does that mean to you? Because your life belongs to me now. You can't take the parts that you approve of. That's me trying to be God. Abide or continue is a Greek word that means to remain, persist in, or live in. So after the sermon that Paul preached in Pisidian Antioch with Barnabas, you remember he said in Acts 13, 43, he urged them to continue in the grace of God. You're continuing in the grace of God. It's an exhortation. That's why he'd double back and go through those same churches again till there were elders who could carry on those exhortations. Continue in the grace of God. It's not just something that is just a default setting. You receive once when you're saved and that's it. You have to continue to access the grace of God. And it's always there every time we sin. Without a moment's hesitation, he has grace greater than all our sin. But we abide in his word and we continue in the grace of God. Later on in Lystra, one of those cities that he doubled back through after being drug out of town and stoned and left for dead. If you remember that, you can only imagine what he looked and felt like. But he goes back in. Why? Because it's important. Just gave the gospel. I'm going back through Lystra. I don't care if there's people there that are going to murder me. We need to get some things established here. And then once we, they appoint elders, you walk through. You first hear about elders in chapter 11, and you walk through. Appoint elders, plural, in the churches. Paul appoints that so that they can be in place of him. He is in place of Christ. He brings the word and the gospel of Christ. He visits. He gives them the gospel. People are saved. Now we have to continue in these things. We have to persevere in these things. And here you can see, as we've been walking this journey with Jesus, they, there are many that didn't. 
So in Lystra, Paul was strengthening the souls. This is Acts 14, 22 to 23. Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So continue in grace, he says in Lystra. He says continue in the faith, <coughs> rather, in, uh, um, in Lystra. In Pisidia and Antioch, he was saying continue in grace. Now he's saying continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You're going to need to access this grace. You're going to need to continue to stand in the trust, which is your faith, because it's through many tribulations that we are taken on to glory. Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, with regard to end times, Jesus declared the one who, what, endures to the end will be saved. It's not how he's saved. It's evidence that he does belong to Christ. He will persevere. In the Reformation, they established what is known as the perseverance of the saints, which is a little bit <clears throat> misleading in that it's actually Christ in you doing the persevering. If you persevere, you belong to him. If you persevere to the end, you belong to him. And how you're saved, it's evidence that you are. That's the point. He wants, says these things not to scare people, but so they'll examine themselves because we need to respond in a way that we understand the full-orbed call of the gospel, this entire life call. Colossians 1, 21 to 23, and you who were once alienated, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. And now this, if, if, we mean if, yeah, if indeed you continue in the faith. If you don't, you don't belong to him. Now, understand something. Let me clarify something. That's not to say that we have our doubts now and then, right? But the point is you come through that. You work those out because you belong to him. You get through it by continuing in the grace that's available for you when you doubt. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to all men. And God is faithful, who will with that trial also provide what? A way of escape. For what purpose? That you might be able to endure that trial. He's there. Those are the means, but you have to continue to access that grace, to turn to him so that you can get through. You continue in that, you continue in your faith. So if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So we're hearing the gospel and we're turning to Christ. That's the finding. That's the believing. But then we're finding out that we belong to him because we follow him, because his word abides in us. That's what he's saying. You're truly my disciples if my word abides in you. If I'm in you, if you belong to me, my word will be there to direct you, to comfort you to inform you, to counsel you, to admonish you. We trust in that. 2 Timothy 3.14, Paul writes to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. 
The evidence of our faith, again, is we continue on. We don't just throw our hands up and give up. They did, and it says many. I hate that it says many, don't you? Many of them turned away in both chapter 6 and now. They're turning away from him. They firmly believed and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it. You learned it from Christ. In Ephesians 4, he's saying that to the former idolaters that were returning to some of their old ways of idolatry, idolatry probably just out of ignorance. And Paul has to remind them in verse 17 and following, but you have not learned Christ in this way. He's admonishing them. Look, you should have had a changed life. You can't go back to the things that you were doing in the idol temple anymore. You belong to him. And so he exhorts them. Hebrews 3.14, for we share in Christ if, if, there's that word if, I don't like that, that keeps showing up. Makes me nervous. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So in many different ways, in many different books, many different expressions, it's saying the same thing. It's the perseverance of the saints. If you belong to him, you will persevere, but you have to continue in the grace. You have to continue in the faith. Chapter 10, 38 to 39 in Hebrews. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, see this test is all through scripture. My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. The soul presses on and perseveres because this, this is not his home. This is a place where we're immersed in sin, tragedy, violence, corruption, murder, theft. Who wants to... Who wants to stay here? Right? You persevere in your soul. So from believing to belonging, this is our test. Have I gone from finding to following? We, we're talking about, and you'll see these mesh together as we conclude here this morning. Now third, from hearing to heeding. So it's not just about hearing, uh, in the sanctuary or in their case out in the temple they're hearing the word of god it's about heeding it's about being convicted by what they they heard but they weren't they went in the other direction because of their pride and because they wanted to protect their position on the sanhedrin or whatever their issue is they're just totally not heeding we're called to heed we're called to submit to the things that he is actually saying you can see this in the Old Testament, right? So it's not just a New Testament concept. God is always required of this. I think we've gone far enough already in this sermon for you to recognize the things we've touched on already. In this one passage by the prophet Samuel, here's what he says in Samuel 12, 14 to 15. If you fear the Lord, serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow, you see all the words we've been using? Will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. 
But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. This is pretty ominous. So if we fear the Lord, we serve him, we obey his voices, says we don't rebel against the word of Christ when it comes. They're rebelling against that. All they can think about is how angry that he's making them. All they can think about are the things that they'd like to do to him and they will eventually do. James 1.25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, this is the law of freedom, and perseveres, presses on, first of all, to find out by the law that I can't do it, right? That leads me where? To the cross, right? Because I can't. And Jesus did. So he perseveres after he looks at himself. He doesn't turn away and forget what manner of man he saw when the Lord, by his grace and mercy, allows me to see the sinfulness of my sin, from there, I'd be, be, be very careful not to turn away and forget what manner of man I saw. But get myself quickly to the cross, the mercy, the grace of Jesus Christ. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. So that's the point. When we hear him, we respond with conviction, with submission to his word, he will be blessed in what? In his hearing. Is that what it says? That was a trick question. Ah, see, I got him. Yeah, thank you. He will be blessed in his doing. James is great about this, right? Chapter 2, I'll show you my faith by my works. I'm not saved because of my works, but my works are the evidence that I actually am. I heed. When his word comes, when the word of Christ comes, it brings conviction, and I'm humbled, and I make confession to him. That's what he wanted from them, but they're not doing it because of their, their pride. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So when the word of Christ comes, the people that belong to him hear him. It resonates in their hearts, and they follow him. But that's what following him means. It means I yield to the things that he says because he loves me enough to tell me the things that need to be addressed in my heart. So it's humbling, but it's needful. Jesus found us. Now we follow him. We hear his voice. Now we heed what he says. That's the point. Luke 8, 21, but he answered them, my mother, when, well, let me set it up first. So this is the uh, point in Luke's gospel where they were standing outside and Jesus is inside with sinners. And he says, your mother's out here, your brother. That, that's not who my mother and my brothers are. Well, that's terrible. Mary's right out there. He's got brothers and sisters. How could you? Wow. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's my brother. That's my sister. That's my family members. Those are the ones who are on this journey with me to glory. So from 
believing to belonging, from finding to following, from hearing to heeding, and now forth, from legalizing to loving. So what they're doing is, the reason I use this language, these words, is they're, they're legalizing, they're taking the parts of the Mosaic law, but mostly the traditions of men that the scribes had created for them, so it's a nice little lifestyle for them. So they've legalized the very things that allowed them to completely miss the spirit of the law, the point of the law, the principle of the law, which is to get us to be humbled and broken because we can't possibly fulfill it. So praise the Lord, Jesus did. But they're legalizing things. Oh, the wheels are turning as they're hearing Jesus speak. Oh, the legalizers do. Their wheels turn. You can see the smoke starting to come out of their ears. God never intended his people to follow the letter of the law without loving him. If you love me, you can try. But if you're trying so as to earn your own eternal destination, you won't be able to. You're going to fail. But when you fail, you'll know why I sent my son. That's our gospel. He said, and do not, this is from the beginning. So from the beginning, God never intended his people to follow the letter of the law without loving him. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Notice how they're always, I shouldn't say always, I didn't check it for that, but in many, many occasions you'll see love together with commandments. There's nothing legalistic about that. They should always be together. I'll show you more. Steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Not those who are just trying to earn their way to heaven, like the ones that are listening to Jesus in our text. To a thousand generations. Good, that makes it to us, so I'm glad to hear that. Daniel 9.4. So we see it in the Pentateuch. Now we see it in a major prophet says similar thing, almost exactly the same thing. Daniel 9.4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. With whom? With those who love him and keep his commandments. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, well, Jesus says pretty much the same thing in John 14, 15. If you love me, what? You will. You will. But get the motive right. If you love me, you will. I'll be accomplishing that in you. Just yield yourself to it. Don't pick parts of the Bible that you're willing to submit to. Let me address things that I need to get cleared up before you get to heaven. Be humble. Or be humbled. I would recommend the former. The latter is tough. God wants his people to follow him in willful obedience out of their love for him, plain and simple. Just as, by the way, Jesus did. He, you almost can see this excitement in him to come and fulfill every jot and tittle of the Father's will. He didn't have his own will. Well, his will was the Father's. So he's fulfilling the Father's will. He did that for our example. We should, we should delight in that. We should have so much love for Christ, so much of an effulgence of joy in our heart and gratitude for what he's done for us 
Tell me what your commandments are. Lord, tell me. Give me your precepts. I want to hear them. Read Psalm 119, yeah? 176 verses worth of love, a love affair with the word, the precepts, the commandments of God. Why? Because that defines who he is and how it is that you and I will be able to dwell with him. And that's exactly what he's trying to accomplish in us. If we yield to him, that's the question. He wants us to follow him willfully. It should be a desire of ours. It should be willful out of our love for him, just like Jesus did. Jesus took care of following the letter of the law for us, but he did it to perfectly fulfill the will of the Father's plan. And he also did it out of his love for us, of course. Who could turn away from such love? Well, if my self-love is stronger than Jesus' love for me, maybe I could see it. So I have to be careful of that. I have to keep my heart in check. So we're simply called to do the same thing that Jesus did. He loves the Father. And so he loves performing everything that the Father has ordained be done. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God. Here it is defined for us, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Psalm 119, verse 127 says, Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, even fine gold. No, I love them. I want to know because it's God speaking. No, 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 no. It's God defining himself to me, the God that I love because he came and sought my soul and his son paid the price that I could be in heaven with him for all eternity. Tell me what it is, Lord. That's how we should be. We like that all the time. Not so much. Psalm 119, 143. And like I said, Psalm 119 is chock full of this kind of, your commandments are my delight, he said. Romans 7, in the New Testament, we have Paul saying similar things. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Oh, I am just full, so filled with the, the love of God's Commandments, his precepts, all of these things. He says, live by these things and you will do well. He wants us to do well. We can't do that if we ignore some places in the Bible that apply to us. We're to yield to it all. Love is manifested in obedience. There is no other acceptable motive in God's eyes for any act of obedience, any act of service. Don't do it with the expectation that people will think well of you. People will approve of you because you serve. We, t we talk about that often here because we want to make sure that in whatever capacity we're called to serve in, we're doing it with the right motive in mind. It has everything to do with God and nothing to do with who appreciates us or, or who helps us. We descend quickly, don't we? And we have to be brought back up to remember that I serve him. I serve him. I serve him. Sure, we'd love to have people's appreciation. And thankfully, we usually get that. We're not always going to get that. And God tests your heart sometimes by deliberately withholding that. There's nobody saying, you know what? I really appreciate your ministry. Or coming alongside to help you. Let me help you with that. And suddenly you're all alone and you're left with these things. Well, maybe I had the wrong motive for what I was doing. He wants me to delight in these things. So this love we're talking about is manifest in obeying him. 
Those who manifest loving obedience to his words are truly his disciples. That's what he's saying. John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. Okay, here it is. If you have what? Love for one another. But he's defined what that love looks like. We aren't free to, to redefine that with sentimental feelings and all of that gobbledygook that gets in the way of what actual biblical Christ-like love is and is required of us. In John 14, there's something in each one of these chapters, 13, 14, 15, in John 14, 23 to 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There it is, pretty plain. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not have, whoever does not love me, does not keep my words. That's what they don't like hearing in these discourses. They don't like hearing his words. Stop talking, Jesus. No, we're going we're gonna to silence you once and for all. And we're working our way to that point. Or in John 15, 10 to 11, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So now his love, it's, it means down deep into a home, making its home there. If, you, if you're doing that, if you're living the life I've called you to, which is not your life anymore, it belongs to who? Him. You're abiding in my word. That allows your, you to abide with me. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If we did these things to the fullest extent God gave us grace and, and allowed us to do it, we would have this joy. But we rob ourselves of joy. He allows us that prerogative, that choice, sadly, truly my disciples, he says. Alethos mathete, alethos mathete. These are truly my disciples, he says. Alethos, authentic, um, we've, truth we get from that word, means real, genuine, authentic. You are really authentically my disciples, he's saying. So see how he's narrowing it down. He's narrowing it down. Mathete is pupil, apprentice, adherent. Somebody who's attached to him, to his teacher. He's listening and he's yielding. He's not only attached, listening, understanding, and yielding, he's becoming. He's becoming like his rabbi. That's what the pupil was meant to do starting to shape his worldview around his teachers, the one that he says that he follows. It shapes my judgments, my perceptions, all those things that comprise what the Bible defines as the heart, the spiritual heart, all of those things. One person wrote that gospel is not just a message to believe, but a person to follow. We're looking for transformation, aren't we? We can't do that if we're not listening and responding to the things that he says. Faith that survives and doesn't falter during trials or 
uh, sufferings, even persecution. That's genuine faith. Alethos, pistis. Alethos, pistis. That would be genuine, authentic faith. The real thing he will endure to the end, as he says in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Really, is that, is that part of it? Yeah. Keep speaking my words and you will be hated. If they hated him, how much more are they going to hate us? Right? We're bringing the words of Christ. We can bring it in love with gentleness and respect. But they don't like us. They want us to stop talking. Maybe you've seen some YouTube clips of people trying to witness at college universities and think it's just brutal out there. My goodness, they're vicious. All they're doing is speaking some truth from the scripture or what, whatever they're doing. So you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Ryle calls it patient continuance in well-doing is the only evidence of grace, end quote. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15, as I mentioned, that's a fact, not a request. It's a fact. It's an indicative. You will, if you love me. If you really love me the way I'm calling you to love me, not yourself or other people more than me, but you love me supreme above all, you will. Because that's the work I'm doing in you. My spirit is with you. My word is in front of you. Abide by it. Submit to it. That's his promise. Verse 32, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You will know the truth. How? John 16, 13, right? When the spirit of what? Truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. It's the role of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He will guide you. You will know the truth. That's a promise. You will know the truth. John 14, 17, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's that abiding again. That's that belonging. That's that understanding what Christ is saying to me in the Word and responding in obedience to it because I love Him. 1 John 4, 6, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Whoever speaks according to these words and responds, lives according to these words, and responds to them, submits to them, <clears throat> you can see the spirit of truth. If they're not speaking or, resp or if they're not re uh, responding according to this word, we know the spirit of error. The truth will set you free. This truth, the truth that the Holy Spirit is revealing to us through the word of God, the truth will set you free. Free from what? I asked myself that question while I was in my study working on this. Uh, let's, let's, well, from what? In this case, from the heavy burden of a legalistic, self-regulated, self-imposed, self-righteous religion. That's what he's confronting with them. 
He's hitting pride head on, and they don't like it. So they'll, uh, many of them walk away, but some stick around just long enough to try to trap him. And they want him shut down. That's their goal, and they'll achieve it. But here's our Gospels. Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord, so that's the Spirit of truth, remember, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Wow. And he's done it. He's done it. Can we forfeit that and still be saved? Mm -hmm. Get this strange habit sometimes of walking back into that cell and closing the door. If we didn't, if that weren't true, he wouldn't have had to put the exhortations in there. No, no, no. You stand in that freedom that I put you in. That's freedom that I've sought and I've bought with a heavy price. You stand in it. 2 Corinthians 3.17, now this, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So when I'm standing, when I'm in the Holy Spirit, when I'm pursuing the Holy Spirit, I'm free. I'm free. I'm responding to what He's saying. I'm doing the best I can to walk by God's grace, and I'm free. And the opening of the... Yeah, exactly. Uh, Romans 7.6, but now we are released from the law. That's what you're set free from. Your obligation to fulfill the entire law to earn your salvation. Having died to that which held us captive. The law held us captive because we were trying to just be better than other people. We were hoping God graded on a curve. We are saying, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And as soon as you get caught up in that trap, you're in trouble. That's not the gospel. Having died to that which held us captive so that we may so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. And here's the verse I was alluding to, Galatians 5, 1. Wonderful exhortation for freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What does that imply? It implies that we can do that, and we do do that. It's possible. Not We didn't lose our salvation, but we put ourselves in this legalistic prison. Absolutely sad. Instead of standing firm. So that, for him having to say that, for Paul having to write that, for that to be in the eternal record of God's word, means that we have a tendency to wander away from the freedom that was skeered for us in Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. Freedom that is secured on the cross. It's freedom to obey, freedom to serve, and freedom to love. That's what we're free to do. But we're rascals. We're rascals. So we do other things with that so-called freedom and find ourselves in bondage. Again, a different kind of bondage because there we are, counting, measuring, 
and weigh. Ourselves? No. Other people. That's the legalized approach to the gospel, not the loving one. Remarkable how we can forfeit that. Galatians 5, 13 to 14, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, if I'm loving the way God has called me to, I need, by the way, the law to do that. Or we don't know what love is. If we think that we should be able to define what loving another person is, you're going to be in trouble. We got to love them the way God is calling us to. In fact, that's what he's talking about after the Last Supper when he says to the disciples, if you love one another the way I loved you, self-sacrificially, servant-hearted, all the rest. They will know you're my disciples because you will look like me, because you're loving like I do. You're not legalizing. You're loving. So you're extending grace and mercy, extending forgiveness. So someone sin grieves your heart, it doesn't become an aha, aha that the psalmist talks about. First Peter 2.16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Verse 33, They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They know full well that they had been enslaved <clears throat> through their storied history, through the many, many hundreds of years, you know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they've been captive before. So that must not be what they're referring to. They're, they're, maybe that what they're thinking is, we're not religiously obliged to anyone. We're God's people. We're Israel. We're obliged to no one. See the confusion? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Still trying to get their attention. Still trying to get their attention. This is a slavery of the soul. It's a, not of nations or governments. That's not what he was talking about. So they've, they've got some confusion going on here. Jesus is actually exposing their powerlessness to sin. You see, no matter how much moral law you apply to yourself, you can't overcome your sin, and you will never overcome death. It will have victory over you. The law is powerless to overcome sin. All it does is excite sin. We see the law, and we get, I don't know what the right word would be, but it's not a good one. Don't tell me what to do. Who do you think you are? That's what the law does. You post a sign and people can't wait to violate it. That's because we're fallen people. So he's exposing their sin and their powerlessness to change that. And if they would stop for a moment, do business with their pride, they would realize, you know what, he's right. 
because their lifelong fastidious attention to religious practice down to the little mint and cumin, all of the little seeds that they would tithe. What a mess. It will never free them of their sinful hearts. It will never overcome death. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. <laughs> That's true. The slave could be sold or traded at any time. Why? And he would have no rights over the house. Why? Because he has no right to the inheritance like the son does. So the son is in the house forever just by virtue of the fact that he is the son and the heir. So the son's the heir. He inherits the, the father's estate in perpetuity, you could say. In other words, perpetually from now on. It's his house. It's a state or quality of lasting forever. That's what perpetuity means. But listen to Hebrews 3, 5 to 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. There's the difference. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast, there it is again. You've got to persevere. You've got to hold on. Your faith, the grace, continue in it. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, firm to the end. So you see this concept repeated all from the Gospels all the way through the Scriptures. Verse 36, and we'll get this coming in for a landing. Verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Don't live under someone else's yoke, their legalistic yoke. Don't do it. You are free in Christ. You are free indeed. Absolutely, entirely. There's nothing that wasn't set free. You are free. But we can put ourselves under the yoke of those who are legalized. No religious practice in the world can ever set you free in every way. No matter how faithful you were, no, no matter how ardent a supporter, whatever those religions are, it'll never do it. It will never, for example, overcome sin and it will never conquer death. It's only by grace that these things are accomplished. Only when we flee to Christ by faith, the power of sin is broken, the penalty of sin is paid and he says with his nail scarred hands you're free to go but stand in that freedom it cost me a lot don't live under the bondage or the yoke of legalizers don't do it I want them to see me and you and you won't they won't see me in you if you turn and respond and place yourself under the legalistic yoke of any other system of belief, any other person, any other religion, don't do it. It's only at the cross that we find forgiveness, blessed forgiveness, where we find mercy, we find grace. Yeah, favor we, don't, we know we don't deserve. But these are the graceless ones. 
unwilling. Why? Because they've counted, measured, and weighed. If that's what we're subject to, you'll never come out from under it. You'll be crushed. It will crush you. Because there's no grace there. There's no forgiveness. Just a keeping a record of the ways you violated over and over. There to remind you of the things that you've done wrong. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't subject yourself to that. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That's them. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Your freedom is forfeited whenever you slip away from the true gospel that we've talked about here today and begin to count, measure, and weigh. You're in trouble. You forfeited the freedom because freedom comes only one way. The payment, the shed blood, the death of Jesus Christ. And those who are free, in that sense, are free indeed. Live that way. Live that way. True Christianity is not law-keeping. Law-keeping counts for nothing. As Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, true Christianity, law-keeping does not count for anything but only, and this is in a, in a verse, Law-keeping does not count for anything but only faith working through love. You get under the yoke of the legalizers, you won't find love there. Only condemnation. Don't do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the freedom that we have in Christ. It's such a heavy burden when, whenever we might slip away and start keeping track of things, keeping count of things. It doesn't produce in us feelings of joy and of love and of freedom. And we've done it to ourselves. Forgive us, O oh Lord. We want to get from believing to belonging. We want to get from you finding us struggling to following you. We want to get from just hearing of you or hearing from you, but heeding what you actually have to say and do. Oh, Lord, keep us from the thing that is most natural to us all because we're fallen, and that is a legalized approach. Oh, that we would never do that to your gospel or to one another. Lord, do now in our heart of hearts as we take this time to pray, and this is what this time is for, that all of us, recognizing this test, test applies to us because you brought it to us today. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. So Lord, help us now that we would be set free as a people, enjoying the joy and the peace that surpasses all understanding. It's the only way it can be appropriated. Thank you for offering it to us. May we stand firm in it in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you search our hearts. That, Lord, we will walk humbly before you in this grace that you've called us to, Lord. That we will walk, Lord, in love as we serve in this church, you and each other. Strengthen us, we pray, Father. Go before us. And we thank you for this, Lord. Bless this offering, we pray, Lord. And we thank you for the privilege it is to give back to you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, trust your Son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, Jesus, thank you. 
incredible job and I appreciate that appreciate their faithfulness to this church I appreciate all of your faithfulness to this church you're a remnant a remnant that remains that we might love one another and I sense your love very strongly and I'm very grateful for it this is a new beginning for us and I hope that we can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and extend one another the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness that he so freely gives to us. Let's do that. We might reflect his character. Father, thank you so much for these brothers and sisters of mine who remain and do all that they can to sustain this, your church. I'm so grateful. So much to be thankful for this Thanksgiving holiday. So, Lord, I pray that you are always pleased and blessed in this, your house. So go with us now, O Lord, and may we share the gospel that we so uh, guardedly hold. May we be free to share others the joy that we ourselves have found in you. Bless us now as we go from this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy 